Welcome to the Strategy and Leadership Podcast brought to you by SME Strategy. Our goal on the Strategy and Leadership Podcast is to bring you practical and actionable tools that you can implement with your teams right away. My name is Anthony Taylor and I'll be your host. Each episode, I'll interview a senior leader or a thought leader that will help you elevate your ability to lead people and drive your organization's strategy forward. Our partner is Cascade Strategy. They're our favorite tool for tracking and executing strategic plans, providing visibility for your entire team, and helping everybody have insight into where you're going and what you need to do to get there. If you're looking to improve your strategy execution, visit smestrategy.net slash cascade for a link for a free 90-day trial so you can see for yourself if you enjoy it and it helps your team move forward. So with that, I want to thank you again for joining us and we'll get into today's guest. So welcome everybody. I'm very excited to have you here. Joe, how's it going today? Oh, it's going wonderful. I'm uh, in my bedroom where I spend uh, basically 16 hours a day here, sleep here, work here, live here, and and don't go anywhere else. That's that's the way it is. <laughs> I know the I know the feeling. It's the challenge when you have the Zoom meetings. Is all you do is go back to back to back to back to back, and there's no like walking time through anything. Right. Exactly. But you know, I roll out of bed and I just walk three feet, and I'm and I'm working. So yeah. you know, you know how it is. Yep. What what has kept you busy this morning? Uh, well, two kids, um, <laughs> so a six-year-old and a three-year-old, so they, they keep me pretty busy. I'm a chief operating officer and executive vice president with Claremont Lincoln University, which is a, a university that's uh, that offers socially conscious graduate degrees, and so they keep me pretty busy. And uh, spreading the message of, of, uh, of hope and uh, strategic living and learning uh, throughout the masses. That's awesome. Well, that's a time it's never been more important to have that. And so that's one of the reasons I'm just really grateful to have you on our show. So for those of you just joining us, I'm joined by Dr. Joe Salustio. Did I get that right? You did. Well done. Thank you. Uh, it helped you put the LinkedIn thing on there. I'm going to tell you that was my sticker. Uh, he is the executive vice president and chief operating officer of Claremont Lincoln University. And he was part of the higher education team of the year for 2019. I'm just really excited to, to speak with you today. One of the reasons I'd love to learn more about what you do and what keeps you busy. One of the things I was really excited about is as a company, we do so much work in education. It's such a critical time, I think, in yeah. history for education to be what it is because it's looking forward. So really love to know more about what you're up to, what you're looking forward to, and how we can help sort of educators and leaders out there. But before we do that, why don't you tell us a little bit about you and your bio, and, and then we'll go from there. Sure. So uh, just a real quick uh, story about myself. I'm, I'm originally from upstate New York, Syracuse. I grew up there. I went to my undergrad there. I hated school every step of the way. Took a one-way Amtrak train, which does anybody even know what Amtrak is uh, these days? I don't know. Yeah, you do. All right. Uh, one-way Amtrak train with three bags of clothes to Denver, Colorado after my undergrad. Uh, set up life in Denver, got a graduate degree, still hated school, Made my way, way even further west to, to Southern California, completed a doctorate degree. It's kind of ironic that I ended up in education uh, for now almost 20 years with uh, really hate. I, I hated school up until I got old enough to really appreciate learning. Right. That's the the key. Um, and uh, and I guess once you have kids and you, you start to get more responsible and, and really understand what learning can do. 
but I've, I've made a, a passion of changing people's lives. I mean, I've invested my entire career in it, into develop, into delivering education to people that need it and uh, seeing them prosper and grow economically, uh, fiscally, in every way possible with education. It's been really a, a, a fulfilling journey up to this point. And, uh, you know, I work for Claremont Lincoln University, as you said, our, our goal with our graduate degrees is uh, a socially conscious education is what we offer. We have four key skills in mindfulness, dialogue, collaboration, and change, really built for today's world, right? Where people are distant, don't talk to each other, can't talk to each other, look at the election, what that's done to our society. Our education is really primed to be a problem solver for leaders to learn how to deal with others. Uh, and, and so I'm really honored to, to be here at CLU and uh, you know, honored to have you um, have me on your, your, your live stream today. I'm really excited to speak with you. Obviously, we've got a lot of senior leaders that listen to our podcast, yeah. follow us on YouTube. And there's sort of two convergent tracks that I'd love to talk to you about. One is what you're seeing in terms of sort of or your experience in the leadership role at CLU. How did you come up with the strategy? How did you decide it? What is the process for creating that transformational change and really sounds like rather progressive compared to a lot of other uh, academic institutions? And so the the mind share of that or how you approach that. And so that's one track. And then the other track is like, there's so many educators out there that I don't want to say they've been left to their own devices, but in March of this year, nobody really gave them a COVID playbook. Nobody right. told them how to engage online. You have supported schools, you have charter schools, you have people struggling with enrollment, struggling with retention. I know those are things that, you know, you've successfully driven. So I want to sort of take those two tracks and then just sort of pick your brain and, and, and learn from you and, and really help the, the leaders out there, whether they're leaders in education or leaders in life. And um, funnily enough, my background is all of my parents are teachers. My mom's a teacher. My dad nice. was a teacher. Anne was a teacher. And uh, I chose the entrepreneur route. So <laughs> I didn't like education, a C student. So we got that in common, which is awesome. But what has it been like in your role at CLU? What was the process for creating the strategy? And then we'll go from there. You know, it's interesting because higher education really has two forms, right? You're, you're well, let's say three. You're a big school. And when I say big school, it's something someone recognizes. They have D1 uh, sports. You could be, a, uh, we'll call it a mid-sized school where you're offering, you're offering degrees could be at any level. You maybe have between five and 10,000 students and under 5,000 students are generally your private institutions could be uh, religiously affiliated, could be liberal arts based, right? So it's interesting because CLU was a small, and I mean small, very small private institution that was created specifically to address how we can learn to treat others as we expect to be treated. 10 paying students. All right. So we had about 35 students, 10 were paying anything. And when I say some, something, I mean, not much. And that's because as a new institution that was created um, as of 2014, when we be, got our independence from how we were incubated, we had to go through two years of creating outcomes. When you're a new institution, you have to create outcomes in, in order to get accredited. So we had to go through the process of basically scholarshiping everybody at 100% in order to get the outcomes so that you could get the accreditation, right? Right. So here I am, I'm brought in to grow enrollment. That's the main goal. We've got accreditation, we've got Title IV funding, which means financial aid, as you would understand it to be. And now, Joe, we need to grow this university. How are we going to do that? 
So you have to, first thing I did is I had to look at the infrastructure and say not one person I had on staff understands how to grow, right? We understood how to service students that were not paying anything, but we didn't understand how to grow to paying students that were now expecting something out of their learning, right? Coming with higher expectations. Once you make that transaction, your expectations completely change. Mm -hmm. So uh, how do we scale? And then secondly, how do we move as quickly as a technology company? That's the way I approach higher, higher education in general, higher education leadership. If I have to move at the speed that higher ed generally is known for moving for, I've already lost. I have to move at the speed of technology. The students meeting at, uh, moving at the speed of technology. Businesses are moving at the speed of technology. Higher ed has to move at the speed of technology. The student can go on Amazon, order a pair of sneakers and get it within 48 hours. If they have to wait for something in higher ed, they're gonna go somewhere else. So there is somebody out there in higher education that is delivering it quickly. So I need to be fast and agile. So we developed and created an infrastructure of knowledgeable. We had to build knowledge. We had to build capacity. Knowledge building was an important part of this. What is retention? How do we define it? How do we track it? What's data look like? How do we bring data as the foundation for all of our decision making? That was really a key component, right? Oh, yeah, we want to grow enrollment. How do we do that? Oh, yeah, we want to keep students. How do we do that? What's the data tell us about our students? Who are we even recruiting? So we instituted a model of taking amazing staff people that needed to grow their knowledge, put that into place, and then we had to hire, right? We had to hire some people around uh, that knew how to do this. And so you reach in, sometimes you reach into your pool of people you've worked with in the past and go, oh gosh, I really trust this person. I'm going to bring them in. I'm going to have them help me show people what's possible. The mind change, right? Change happening. Is that somebody who had done it before? Like you brought people who had been there, done that as the had to. example? Okay. Yeah, had to. Had to because their expectation of it happening was there, right? Somebody from the outside goes, oh, I've done this before. I, I'm looking at Claremont Lincoln University. I see the potential. Oh, I would love to grow enrollment versus a person who we might have had on staff that goes, oh, it's really hard to recruit right now. All of a sudden, boom, explosion. We Our enrollment goes up from the 10 paying students at the time to now uh, at approximately 300 graduate students, okay, over a two-year period, uh, two-and-a-half-year period. And all of that growth uh, comes with you know, finance. So we're, we have money, we have dollars coming in the door, which is a positive. Students are paying. Um, now, do we have some students that are on a, a partial scholarship? Absolutely. Um, not unlike other universities that are out there, but we have a very affordable tuition. So it's about expanding access, uh, expanding affordability, and, and making sure that the student understands the quality of the education, right? You do get what you pay for, no matter what industry you work in. And we believe that our curriculum is positioned to be really the liberal, liberal arts education of the 21st century. And if mm -hmm. you can't deal with each other respectfully, the, you, you, uh, you see what happens when that's the case out there in society. And are you talking, and so that was fundamentally the value proposition of the school and had to like really be clear and as part yeah. of like the mission of the school? Yeah, yeah, right, define the mission. Now we're looking at brand. 
we define the mission, you create the infrastructure. Now we're going to recruit, but we we've got to now cement the brand along the way because you know, unlike most institutions out there, we don't have a hundred year history to pull on. Students aren't lining up at the door, so there's a big difference between passive recruitment and active recruitment. Which, by the way, is we're talking about the coronavirus playbook. A lot of institutions have now had to understand or are understanding what active recruitment looks like versus passive recruitment. There isn't a lot of door knocking right now. Let, let me into your institution because I can go to 50 different places that now have online learning that didn't before. So my choices as a consumer are exponentially greater. So how are the institutions going to find me and recruit to me? And that's what schools are, are really struggling with in a way right now. So I just want to jump in there and just highlight for our listeners. So thank you for really painting that picture. You know, at the heart of this is approaching the education as a business, like embracing the technology component as a how, but really recognizing that in this world of competition, choices, options, and opportunity that you had to approach it like, hey, we're a business. We need to prove our value. We need to get proof of concept. We need to get product market fit. And then we need to go out and actually like get people to come to us. And not just like recruit because we want good sports students because those right. people are used to that, but actually saying, hey, we need to like door knock and every single customer student is going to make a big difference in us being able to prove our outcomes and have that growth opportunity moving forward. So keep going. I just wanted to really like highlight that because I think to the point of when you said like that hundred year history. Sometimes the hundred year history is the thing that pulls you back is the thing that like we've yeah. been thinking in those 1980 models, 1970 models, not the 2022 model. Uh, totally. And, and you're, to your point, there is and has been and it's getting a little less now where people within higher education don't look at it like a business. That's that's lessening. I think more people are understanding that higher education is a business, right? Fundamentally, it's a business. You have a transaction of dollars. You, I have dollars. I'm a consumer. I buy something. It gets delivered to me. Now, over time, it's not just like an Amazon product, right? It's going to be over time. And I am an active participant in getting that delivery. But there's still a transaction and can still take my dollars and go somewhere else if I want to. I can pick up at any time and go to a competitor, which, by the way, is going to be marketing to me to transfer my credits. It's time to wake up and, and, and realize uh, throughout our industry that the words consumer, the words uh, finance and financial, uh, those are real words within higher education. We're, and there are a lot of schools right now with financial tightening. I, I, I like to say financial tightening because it can mean so many things, right? So, yeah, scale the business. Now start branding, right? So our challenge at Claremont Lincoln University, it's not the delivery of the education. We have amazing faculty. We have uh, a core skills, mindfulness, dialogue, collaboration, and change that are really built for society, right? When you see the George Floyd stuff and all the social unrest, our curriculum teaches people how to work together in a way that's practical, not theoretical. But now we have a brand. We've got to expand that brand. We've got to market. We've got to find you. We've got to make you interested in our curriculum, we've got to get you where you are. You know, students at a graduate degree level, they may not be ready right this moment, but six months from now, they're ready. So we've got to nurture you. We've got to look at this as a difference of cap, uh, cultivate versus capture when it comes to marketing, right? We need to cultivate your interest if you're not yet interested and keep you interested until you are. But if you're at an interest point that's high, we need to capture your interest right now. So that marketing bifurcates, the messaging bifurcates, but we need both of those groups over time, right? So the cultivate and capture foundation is important to our marketing and to our brand. So that's the way we approach it. 
So from that perspective, because we have sort of like, and you know, should maybe ask a dumb question. You have the administration, obviously, where you're at that higher level. Then you have the teachers. Was it a challenge of getting people on board to that, like recognizing that they don't just have to like do the job of teaching, but fundamentally, like the teachers are the product in this, like the whole culture of what the school was? Did you have any challenges getting people on board to that? Or, you know, what were the steps that you took to get that buy in to have people like recognize that as you move forward? You know, that's a really good question. And the answer in that is not that it was the, the, faculty understanding that because I think that faculty want to grow programs naturally. The faculty want to teach students. They don't want to have five students in a class. They want to have 15 students in a class because it makes it easier to teach. The dissonance for us was we want to grow enrollment, but we don't agree on what type of university we are, what type of student we're serving. Are we serving the same student as Harvard? Are we serving the same student as an institution that has a more open enrollment policy? That positioning was causing great disagreement uh, at the beginning. And then, and then also, when you're looking to increase enrollment, you may have policies in place that limit that. And now I'm somebody who's created a policy and I have some pride of ownership. Now I've got Joe coming in telling me, you got to change that policy if you want to enroll people. And I go, I- I'm not changing my great policy. So all of a sudden you realize, even if you create the infrastructure, that there, there is a policy. Sorry, my garage door goes open when somebody leaves the house. <laughs> I can't right. stop that. That's worth it for a moment. Uh, but, but your policies in place, uh, your catalog, the way you look at things uh, has to fundamentally change if you want to grow enrollment. To your point, if you're an institution that is turning away 95% of your applicants, you have to have 100% of people applying to turn away to turn away 5%. But if that, all of those people stop applying because their choice goes up or because there's just less applicants out there, that strategy doesn't last. Yeah, that's one of the things I'm a little bit worried about for schools, higher education, all business but within the context of education is they they've we've dealt with like a level of of certainty for yeah. such a long time like not that and now just it's to use the disruption like education is being disrupted by like multiple places like how much is education actually worth like what am i paying for do i even need it and that those that are going to be stuck in that old way of thinking and by a byproduct the old processes aren't going to move forward and i've talked to you know we're in canada but we coach leaders and and educators across canada and the us and I see it all the time, the gap between like who's leading and who wants to look forward and who is like stuck in that previous mindset and just saying like, hey, I can't move forward unless we have that buy, especially when it's people above. Can you speak? I don't know if you've had that experience or what you've seen in other educational organizations, especially since sort of COVID's kicked in. Well, you know, I, I happen to have my own podcast called The Edup Experience with two, two of my amazing partners, Elizabeth Leiba and Elvin Freitas. And we talked to college presidents. We've talked, we've had 100 episodes, and I think, you know, 50 of them have been college presidents. And so we asked those questions. Here's what I can tell you. There are some folks, it's an inflection point. If a college and university has administrators that are looking backwards, saying, we hope things go back to normal pre-coronavirus, that is like signing a death certificate at this point, because even if it trends slightly in that direction, it will never go back to normal completely. Mm. And that, that means even if coronavirus is completely eliminated tomorrow, 
the greater public has now been exposed to online learning and its flexibility. So there's never going to be a return to normal completely. Students now have an expectation that's different. Perhaps they're looking at online and brick and mortar learning to be really a hybrid experience where they get to choose. Do they want to go to class today and do it in person? Do they want to take online classes today? I still maybe want to be in a dorm, but I don't want to have to get up and go out in the snow if I'm Syracuse, New York, where I'm from. <laughs> I, I want to stay in my dorm today and go to class online. So I'm just going to zoom into my faculty. That, that's a completely different infrastructure. It will never go backwards. There, the other person is standing there looking forward saying, what is this going to look like moving forward into the future? How is technology going to be enhancing the learning experience? And how does this more, look more like a technology company in terms of speed and agility than it does anything else, right? We're going to deliver high quality education as we've always done. How do we do that? to the expectations of a consumer that has grown up as a digital native if you're in your teens now, right? As, a, as an adult, which we know adults are all over technology these days. I mean, I, you, you, everybody, when I take my kids to jujitsu, you know, everybody's on their phone. It doesn't matter their age. They're, everybody's on their phone. So how does learning become mobile? How does it become accessible? And, and that those forward thinkers are gonna be the institutions that survive. I will say this, there's been a lot of prognosticators that talk about higher education institutions closing. There's going to be less closing than we think because people have higher ed typically does have forward thinking people hindered by a lot of policy. Those policies are going to be broken down now. And, and those forward thinkers are going to have a, a higher opportunity or better opportunity to move forward. But schools that want to compete in an online space for students are gonna figure out they can't do that, that they don't have the capacity to do that in the next 12 to 18 months. And so when schools close, which there will be some, it's gonna be because they couldn't compete, not because their education was outdated or not because there wasn't value, it's gonna be because of competition. Do you see an increase in collaboration and partnership between these higher education institutions? Yeah, you know, there is. And, and there's model changes, there's financial model changes that are happening right now, uh, consortiums, and consortial agreements are on the rise. There's different ways to imagine a consortial agreement in terms of shared services, right? Uh, enrollment happens over here for everyone. And then the students come into my institution for this or this institution for that, right? Human resources happens over here in a hub and they work with these three institutions to offer human resources. So that's one way to look at it. Another way uh, that you can do it is through uh, a synthetic merger uh, or a synthetic consortial agreement, as they call it, where everybody remains there, keeps their independence. There's uh, versions where you give up your independence. There's a lot of explanation or exploration happening right now, explanation and exploration happening within higher ed. So yes, partnerships are happening, but I and I also think that higher ed institutions are getting smarter about looking to the to business and industry. Can we work with you to help define what curriculum needs to look like for your business? That's a big question right now that we're all asking. One of the things that, you know, because we have people here that are in education, people that aren't in education, one thing I, I encourage you to think about is how this is relevant to you. Because if you're in industry and you're hiring, you know, the people that that Joe was talking to and that are going through the programs, they're the ones who are going to be entering your workforce in five years. Like even if they're at square one right now and, you know, leaders are in their business for 10, 20 years, this is the education of the future. So education is the, the output 
at least at my, from my perspective, that's the output of like the future workforce. What are the skills that they're learning? What are they coming to the table with? And it's going to be a byproduct or an output of these higher education uh, institutions. So Joe, do you want to speak to that? Like, what are you seeing in the, the lay of the land of the, the future workforce, which is like a divergence from where we're going, but here we are. <laughs> yeah, you know, technology, technology, STEM, I mean, all of those things are really important. I, you know, I think uh, business and industry is pretty specific about what they're looking for. You know, Google's a good example. They just come out and they launch uh, non-credit certificates that are going to train you in coding and, and all this stuff, right? Anti-higher ed, right? It's it's for people that don't want to commit to higher education. Now, you could look at that in one of two ways. You could say Google's trying to compete and they're trying to uh, show that higher ed doesn't have value. Or you could look at that and say, there may be a student that's not ready for higher education. They should go through that training before they figure out what they want to do and invest in higher education. It's all about positioning and tact that, that you want to take. You know, I do. I will say this, that customization of curriculum is going to be an important part of higher ed's value proposition going forward. Business and industry says, I want this skill. Can higher ed then deliver this skill? Can they do it in a non-credit environment? Can they do it in a four-credit environment? And one of the hardest things for higher ed is, is curriculum change, right? Curriculum change, whether it's pride of ownership with tenured faculty or it's, it's just curriculum that's been approved. If you change that curriculum by a certain percentage, you have to resubmit your program for approval through the Department of, of Ed and uh, through your accreditor. So that can slow down your ability to be, to be agile. So there's a compliance part of this that's that's difficult. Now, if you change it and tweak it little bits at a time, you can do that without going through uh, through a full accreditation process. That's important, right? But non-credit, if you, if you do anything non-credit, um, you can customize that curriculum seven ways from Sunday. It's a question of whether you have the capacity, the agility, and the drive to do that and invest the time in it. Yeah, because I see that accreditation, those changes, because on one hand, you're saying, hey, you need to be nimble, you need to be adaptive, but it's also within these like legacy systems that are built there to protect people. Like if you don't want you buying something that's unproven, you need to make sure you've got those things. So the systems are on one hand there to keep you safe. On the other hand, restrict your ability to to be adaptive. So the question I have is, you mentioned about the difference between going forward and going backward. Yep. You know, what happens if you're in a situation where you're looking forward and some people around you are going backward? What do you do other than like tell them to listen to your podcast, which I still recommend. Uh, but like, what do you do in order to move that forward so that you get people on your team and, and your stakeholders looking forward to the future and not in the past? That's, boy, a key leadership question and a hard one to answer because people are so different and and change averse generally, right? Uh, mm -hmm. People don't like change. I think right now the enrollment story is going to help that change be facilitated easier. Most institutions, I'm going to say most and generalize that there's so many institutions across the country, but the enrollment declines are happening. Uh, they're happening at most educational levels uh, in higher education, associate degree, bachelor degree, right? They're just happening. And that's happening for a few reasons, mostly due to the coronavirus right now. Okay. Um, I'll tell you, my my uh, co-host on the Edup Experience, her daughter is thinking about taking a gap year. She just she wants to be on campus. She's not going to go back to school because it's not ready for her. And so she goes to work for a year instead. That's going to happen more and more. The question is, can you pull those people back out of work and get them back into school? 
And if you can, will they come full-time or part-time? So that's where all the change comes from. How do you move people along? The enrollment uh, uh, numbers will tell the story. And I think it's it's going to be easier to achieve that in higher ed than ever before. First of all, because you're gonna to have to invest in systems and technology and people that know what they're doing. And second of all, because if enrollment is on the decline, then everybody is looking around going, how much longer can we sustain here? You know, the schools that are in the most trouble are the ones that have a year or two of operating expense in, in, in the bank, uh, for lack of a, way to, a better way to say it. A year or two from now, if that enrollment declines by 15, 20%, that, that year or two is evaporated pretty quickly. And so I think as a leader, you have everything you need to say, all right, guys, look at these numbers. The data is telling the story. And so that's where data decision-making comes back into play. And yeah, you get people there, but if you have the proof to show them why, that's a lot easier, right? Hmm. I got a question from the chat before we go into the question of the chat. We, we talked a lot about the enrollment and the enrollment being the thing that we look at. Like that's the data point. And like at the end of the day, it's numbers, right? What do you say to those leaders that are in a situation where like it's it, the teachers are having the challenge? Cause you know, my mother-in-law who's upstairs has, is in a system where she's got to be in the system and like teachers are supported to whatever the level. Some don't have that cash. I'm not saying her situation is that. And then, so you have to like choose where you're putting your investments. What do you say to educators that are dealing with teacher fatigue, teacher burnout, frustration, uncertainty? You know, how do you move forward through that? Does enrollment solve everything or is it a little bit more complicated? Oh, it's certainly more complicated. And, and that's a question that is for every institution right now, because I don't think there's a teacher on the planet in whatever context they work in, that's not feeling some kind of burnout right now. Uh, the amount of respect I have for for K through 12 teachers right now is just unbelievable. Teaching little kids online, it's un, unreal uh, across the country. So the, it, it's something. But the, I think the answer to that question is this. Yes, resources are going to be limited. No enrollment doesn't solve everything, but it does create revenue stream. It can't be the only revenue stream. And that's why a lot of schools are, are worried right now is because they've been dependent on tuition revenue to be their primary. It is going to be your primary revenue stream. Uh, uh, but then you look at advancement and donations going down because most of the dollars out there is going to health, right? Mm -hmm. It's going to health. It's going to fight coronavirus. It's not going to education as readily as it was before. Um, but investing in faculty development is going to be a really key piece in this, right? So take an institution that moved online. They were brick and mortar. They moved online, moved all their students online, moved all their faculty, all their courses online. Now you're, what are we in, in uh, your second or third month of your fall term? You're probably going to be online next term. What have you done for your faculty now to get them ready for next term? Professional development, because moving one term online seems exciting. Yeah, you had some change along the way, but now I'm good. I'm fine. Now do it another term. The student is different. The online student is different than the on-ground student. They're even if they were an on-ground student and they're an online student, they are also changing. So what am I doing for my faculty now to prepare them for spring, to prepare them for the summer, to, for, for the fall, or if you're on a non-traditional schedule of enrollment, that has to be done even faster because that faculty will experience burnout, especially if they haven't been an online faculty member before. They're gonna have that burnout happen really fast. They're gonna have that moment of, oh, I gotta do this again because the demands are different. I've got to be online. I've got to be online all the time. And so, yeah, the, the development of faculty is a key piece, but that can be done. There are so many free sources of development out there now uh, that you can achieve that with just a little bit of effort. 
and save those dollars maybe for something that's going to give you a, a ROI that's more visible on the front end. Because I mean, that obviously we're talking higher education, we're talking, you know, education that you like derive your demand versus ones that are like publicly funded, the K through 12, that have their own challenges, but also have things to learn. Fundamentally, it's, hey, you know, you have core customers, your core customers are your teachers in this case, because students are going to keep showing up, but going online is also an alternative. So recognizing that, and yeah, they're they're dealing with like the craziest thing imaginable yep. and they're just like thrown into this. So, you know, shout out to teacher, hug a teacher. Well, don't hug a oh, teacher. Yeah. That's not socially distanced, but that's another story. Um, cool. So I'm going to ask somebody asked a question on the chat. So I'm just going to go there. Um, it says, do you think the uh, last year's NACAC policy update will further the separation? And that was from something earlier that we, we asked. So I, I don't know what, uh, what you mean by separation. I think what you're asking is um, the NACAC policies on, on recruitment really blew up the, I don't know what you call them, the, the sort of the, the everybody's going to be a good guy uh, stand, right? Because somebody would enroll, they're enrolled in a college, then you don't market to them any longer because they've, they've gone through enrollment. Now you can continue to market to them really throughout uh, their entire educational journey, at least until they start. So it's it's created and broken down some of the barriers that that created uh, the honor system for recruitment, right? Yeah. Um, so yeah, uh, the the NACAC policies are going to make competition heat up quickly, and you're seeing it now. You're seeing it in the terms of of a lack of uh, or a reduction in testing, right? Uh, go online and look at a school that's dropped their entrance testing. You'll find uh, hundreds of them. Why? Well, it can be tied to diversity, inclusion, and access. Absolutely true, right? Testing is, um, it's more tied to opening the funnel at the top end. Anybody that tells you that it's not about increasing enrollment is blowing smoke, right? Dropping entrance testing is to simply increase the number of applicants, right? So that is a tactic that schools are using to create a top of funnel that looks larger, so yeah, the NACAC um, uh, uh, regulations and the lack of um, the ease on those regulations is going to create increased competition. You're seeing it. Uh, some schools uh, started offering free fall term, you know, especially among, uh, during coronavirus, free tuition, free parking spaces, free, you know, free dorm room for the for the term. You're going to see that coming out of coronavirus. There's going to be more free stuff. It's going to look more like incentive based enrollment than anything else. And that's absolutely going to happen. No, is that, do you think is that a good thing or a bad thing for the education as a whole? Well, it depends on how you look at it. If you're a capitalistic and you say competition is good for any industry, it can be looked at as a good thing. If you uh, are worried about your individual institutions or you're looking at this from the outside and say that it becomes more about the dollars and cents than it does about the quality of education, you're going to look at it from a downside. And it, it, it depends. I, I am one to think that different students need different schools. And so competition is good for the consumer. So we've got another question here uh, from Carl Cox in Oregon. The late Clayton Christensen from Harvard predicted 50% of colleges and universities will close or go bankrupt in the next decade. What do you predict? And that also will be a segue from the amount of competition talk we just had. Yeah, I wasn't sure I said I'd take hard questions today. Uh, (laughs) uh, uh, I don't agree. I don't agree with that. Uh, Well, let me say this. It depends. And I think it depends on what close means bankrupt is very clear but closure is it an independent institution that closes their doors and teaches out their students right i don't think that's going to happen as as often uh, up to 50 percent 
I think you're going to see more mergers and more consortial agreements. I think the consortial agreement is going to save a lot of colleges and universities from closing. And so I think that 50% uh, will be uh, a lot less. Um, 25% maybe 50. No, I think it's really tough for a college or university to literally just close right now and teach out their students. There's other pathways that you can take to keep your institution viable. Some might turn themselves into institutes or training centers or non-credit. There's going to be other pathways that from the Department of Education definition of closure, it means you've closed your building and, and you've taught out your students and your company is essentially liquidated. I, I think we'll see more mergers. Look at recently the University of Arizona went and purchased Ashford University, which is a for-profit university to basically move themselves online. Uh, did Ashford close? No, it will cease to exist over time, but it's not necessarily a closure as much as it is uh, a merger and survival in that way. So, you know, I think it will depend on how you look at that statistic and how you define those those terms. Hmm. That makes a lot of sense. It's uh, it's interesting. Again, like the more we watch it, you know, it's very, again, capitalistic United States. That's what y'all, everybody is. But to be able to look at those opportunities, and I think what's important not to lose sight of is we, we've had all this conversation about business and the business side of it and the leader side, the people side of it. But fundamentally, there is like the, the student outcomes on the back end, right? Yeah. The ability to survive, the ability to be nimble, the ability to manage all of that is ultimately going to provide consistency, provide like greater outcomes for students and help them be prepared for the world because it's driven by market demand, whether that's industry or the students, but a combination of both. And the better you are at adapting that, the more successful you're going to be as a, as a business, as an institution. I did have another question about all of that because we talked about the enrollment piece a lot. Retention. What do you see as being the, the key drivers to retention moving forward? Is it more of the same or is it a different approach? I'd say that uh, depending on your university, you're still trying to figure that out, right? Online and online school, online delivery, you're really looking for retention to a certain term, right? Retention to third term generally indicates to you that your student's going to persist through the program versus if you have that student on ground, retention looks completely different. You can go to their classroom and knock on the door and say, you know, or, or call them uh, and say, yeah, where, where are you in class today? I, mean, I think it's a different, uh, a different outlook, but yes, Retention is as if not more important than enrollment. You figure it like this. You've got to enroll two new students for every one you lose uh, that was in school that, that comes out. It's a really, you know, if you're losing them out the back door, it doesn't matter how many you put in the front door. And so there's there have to be elaborate systems in place. I think technology and investments in technology are going to be absolutely key. Can I right now do everything I could do on ground and do it online? Do I have writing support? Do I have open access resources instead of books, right? Could, could my institution eliminate book costs and go to all open resources to both save me time of ordering books and save me extra money, right? So what am I doing to, that's a retention tool. What are my orientations look like on the front end for online learning? I know what they looked like on ground, you know, parties and streamers in the air and all this stuff. What do they look like online and how do I get the same feeling and effect uh, from students that are that are going to be coming to my school in the spring online. Hmm. So yeah, I mean, I think it's a great point. Retention looks really different, will look really different because I go back to my whole point after coronavirus is over, which I, I say that with the hope that coronavirus will end someday. We don't know how it yet will be spliced with the flu, but assuming we get out of this someday, uh, online learning and on-ground learning look different. 
how do I retain my students? And that's something that needs to be looked forward to now, right? There's going to be a day where you enroll in school, in my opinion, and in the mail, you get a, a pair of virtual reality goggles, right? So I can put myself in the classroom with you, uh, much like we're doing on Zoom, but I can see you in the chair and I can see my faculty member up front. You know, yeah. I mean, I think it's going gonna, it's gonna to be really wild to see what happens in the future. That's trippy, but you heard it here first, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Uh, a couple more questions in the chat because this is awesome. Um, so one is around, in terms of remote learning, what will the role of badges and certificates and like workforce development play for, for today's university students? Because you see a lot of like, I mean, the world of gamification and LinkedIn, I think, really led forward on that. And they acquired Linda and all that stuff. You know, how do you see that moving forward? And do you see the value of those, cert uh, those certifications and those accreditation, formal accreditation being as valuable, more valuable, less valuable moving forward? Um, yes, to all of that. that uh, the key there is that universities have to realize that there is now a demand for different ways to learn beyond the degree. The degree might be something you still go and get, but the whole concept of lifelong learning, the 60-year curriculum, is the fact that you may be in and out of your educational journey. I want a skill in this. I get a badge. I put on my resume. I go get a job. Oh, I need a degree. I go get it. I come back. I put that on my resume. Oh, I need another skill. I go get it. I got a badge. Uh, my my employer advances really quickly and says, hey, we need to get you trained in X, Y, and Z. And then I can go and get that at the university. Maybe my university looks more like a membership, like a Marriott Rewards type of organization than it does a, a, a university. Right? There's so many different ways to envision the future. But, but to that question is really important. Badges, certificates, workforce development are, are key, 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 because you're your adult student isn't just after a degree anymore. They're skill stacking. And the skill stacking can happen for credit and can happen non-credit. Your non-credit could be your entry to for credit, right? If I get three, four non-credit skills and go, man, I really would like to formalize my leadership in this, then I go get the degree. So it's a way to, you can create a loss leader in, in a way doing that, uh, but you can also create mass, right? So you see Google doing that, Amazon is invested in that. They're part Amazon and uh, partners with a lot of universities uh, to do that. So we're doing that at Claremont Lincoln. We're looking at badging skills throughout the degree so that they can immediately go on the resume and mark making more marketable. Yeah, I, I, I play video games. And so that's what I like thought of is like, hey, if you want to advance to like level 30, like you need to have like this much XP in here. And like the idea of just-in-time learning, you know, it took me seven years to do my degree, but I was grateful because I ran a couple businesses at the time. And it's like not only like the learning, but the actual application of it and the practical stuff like learning for the future. So I think that's going to be neat to see how from a competitive advantage place from a consumer, you know, how does that differentiation go? And then like, what are you going to trust more? You know, my background is French. They value higher education, like the name brand of it. Yep. Now, is that name brand going to be as good as a level of certification? You got an A plus over here, or whatever Topaz <laughs> certification over here. Okay, is that going to be good enough for what I need? And I see that also potentially disrupting hiring. Like if you're like, hey, yeah. I need like this and throw that into a software now that you can virtually hire from anywhere. You're like, great, this person on the other side of the country has something I need. I'm going to hire them and do it remote. Or the business that says, I'm investing in my own training and skills development, so why do I need to send somebody anywhere else? I'm going to hire them and train them myself. I mean, I think that's a big part. By the way, your, your talk about the, the university and the brand recognition is really important, a part of this, because even at the degree level, 
the thought is, and I think the position that most people have is, if I go to this university that I know well and everybody's ever heard of and it costs like $100,000 to, to go there per year, that I'm somehow getting a higher quality education. I don't necessarily believe that. I think that educational quality is pretty even across the board. There are very similar practices. There are faculty members that teach at very well-known universities and teach at the smaller liberal arts university over here. The same faculty member, the adjunctification of faculty allows them to teach at multiple locations. So quality of education is really high across the board. What you pay for is was a perceived level of networking, that if you happen to go here, you're, you're getting something that's going to create a better job for you along the way. I think that's really shrinking. I think elitism in university colleges and universities is really becoming blurry uh, because consumers, uh, savvy, financial, adult students value their dollar more than the wealthy parent or kid paying for an elite university at an 18, 19 year old, uh, uh, you know, affect. I, I just think that really careful about how you spend those dollars for your higher education. Yeah. What's the, the value equation, right? It's like, what do you, what do you value and what are you going to get out of it? One more question from Maurice. He asked, well, you know, what do you think of the, some key performance indicators for enrollment attribution currently? So it sounds like that was something that you knew right about. So let's go there and then we'll, we'll, we'll talk. Um, well, it depends. Uh, mar marketing attribution, enrollment attribution. I mean, I think, you know, you've got to look in the equation, right? Um, when, when you're looking at uh, enrollment. I'm looking at me personally, I'm looking at my cost per lead, cost per enrollment, and my cost per start. My acquisition costs are really important. Um, looking at a, a three-tiered way of recruitment through Google, through organic, and through other, as I call it, which is referral, podcasts, other, other media that you can look at. Um, when it comes to attribution, um, you've got to look at all of the ways you collect interest and attribute those to where the source is and then look at your cost center and divide that out for a cost acquisition cost. You know, a lot of schools don't completely understand acquisition cost. What is what should a cost per start be in higher education? And that's a question that that uh, depending on your institution and your program cost has to be answered in order to fully understand attribution. Yeah, the actual business of it. I know Carl Cox and I have worked together and one of the examples he uses for leading and lagging indicators is, you know, like, what is the leading indicator for that's going to make the biggest difference? And that's like on-site showings or walkthroughs or whatever. And then obviously taking that to a lag one is the, the cost per cost Absolutely. per start. So. Joe, we've talked about so much stuff today. I've got a, a paper scribbled about notes. Is there anything else that you want to leave our listeners with, whether they are in the education sector in terms of, hey, how to be resilient, which I think you've covered like ed, like to the depth, or, yeah. or leaders in terms of, hey, how can they capitalize on what's happening in the future of, of education and the future of even 2021 looking forward, how to make the most of it? You know, yeah, I'll take that that second one. And I think from a leadership perspective, here's what I would say. And, that, and this is the way I uh, view a, a big piece of higher education leadership in the future. Everything has now become more visible. Everything we do in higher education leadership has been more visible. And I think this is, you can call this a theory, that the more visible of a leader you are at the presidential level or other, you know, other uh, uh, vice presidential levels, the higher likelihood that you're going to have the students come to your school. Being on social media is an important part of transparency. 
students want to know what's happening and they want to know how you are living your life and the decisions you're making. Look at our political sphere for, for an example. And so I, you know, I, I've talked to some uh, college presidents on, on my podcast that are just very transparent and out there. And it makes a big difference on how the brand is being created at their university. And so I think there's a new and upcoming wave of higher education leaders who are very transparent. They're very visible to their constituents. And they are a part of that community versus, you know, higher education in the past has been crystal towerish, right? You never knew who was behind the curtain running it. But I think that today that changes. And social media is a very, very powerful way to make or break your institutional brand and mission and everything else that goes along with it. That's awesome, Joe. I think that's super clear. I'm really excited to see what happens in the future and to follow along with what you're doing in the space. So how can our listeners learn more about your podcast, follow you around and support what you're up to? Well, uh, as I said, at Claremont Lincoln University, we offer socially conscious education. You can check it out at www.claremontlincoln.edu. For anybody interested in a very fast-growing higher education podcast, check out www.edupexperience.com, and you can find me on LinkedIn anytime. Ladies and gentlemen, my guest today is Dr. Joe Salustillo, who is the Executive Vice President and COO at Claremont Lincoln University. Please check out his podcast. You know, we need great, smart leaders leading the world, leading people forward. Um, if you enjoyed today's podcast, please like and share, subscribe, share it with somebody that you care about, especially if you're in the education space, because it's going to move with or without them. And I'd rather your people be prepared and have the tools that they need so they can be proactive instead of reactive. My name is Anthony Taylor. This has been the Strategy and Leadership Podcast Live been joined by joe joe thanks again it's been such a blast we're gonna stick around for a little bit but appreciate you joining me today been an honor thank you thanks so much for listening to today's episode before you go i wanted to make sure that you knew about our signature course that'll help you better align your team and get them bought into your strategic plan it's presented really simply that whether you're a seasoned veteran or brand new to strategic planning, it'll help you better understand it. It'll help your team think more strategically and it'll help you better prioritize and set goals. Ultimately, it's gonna give you a plan that you can execute successfully. Because you have no idea how many plans that I see that look good, but are missing key components to make them successful. And we cover all of those missteps in the course. On top of all the video training, you'll get access to all of our workbooks and access to our knowledge base and community. The course is only $4.95 and you can get instant access to all of the videos. Plus you can use the code podcast for $100 off. The course comes with a 100% money back guarantee. If you don't get value from the course, let us know and we'll give you all of your money back. So go to smestrategy.net slash course. Use the code podcast for $100 off, and I'm really looking forward to the opportunity to support you and your team in getting alignment and moving your strategic plan forward. Thanks again for listening, and we'll catch you next time.